Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 138th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we have a location that was suggested by and researched by Bob Sherfield, and that is the Battle of the Somme. Denise, this is a battle, as I mentioned on the previous podcast, that reminds us of our Gettysburg and Antietam. A lot of men are going to die in this battle. I know it's very, very sad. And the reason why Bob Sherfield recommended that we do this particular event in history right now is because July is the 100th anniversary of the start of that battle. Before we get into that, we'd love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We got an email from Krista. Hello, ladies. I am a new listener to the show and absolutely love it. Your mixture of history and creepy happenings makes even the most mundane workday enjoyable. And I dread the day that I catch all the way up. I have to admit, being a native Ohioan, and having grown up close to Lebanon, Ohio, your episodes on the Golden Lamb Inn caught my eye and was the first episode I listened to. I thoroughly enjoyed the episode and couldn't help but smile when I saw its post date of May 19th. You see, I've gone to the Golden Lamb countless times before, but the last time I was there was on May 20th, during the rehearsal dinner for my wedding. Unfortunately, if there was any sort of strange occurrence during our dinner, I was too busy being the stereotypical bride to have noticed. Either way, I still enjoyed your episode on the Golden Lamb as well as every other one I've listened to since. Thank you for making my special day that much more special and keep up the good work. Blessings, Krista. Well, congratulations on your marriage, Krista. And I told her, Denise, there was another little weird piece of synchronicity in regards to that. I got that email today and right before I got that email, I was listening to the Most Notorious podcast and he was interviewing a gentleman on there. And for some reason, they got to talking about the lawyer who shoots himself in the Golden Lamb Inn, the one who was trying to demonstrate how he was going to defend his client and said, well, he, he had it in his pocket and it accidentally went off and see, so you can actually shoot somebody. And then he shot himself and it basically proved his theory, but then he was dead. Right. Well, the guy was talking about that today and he said, yeah, and that happened at the Golden Lamb Inn. So I was like, oh, that's cool. We've talked about that. And then I got that email and I went, okay, what am I supposed to be paying attention to about the Golden Lamb Inn? Do, 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 do. We also got this email from Marianne Barkham. Hello, ladies. Hope you're having a wonderful week. I found your podcast through Tanner at Legends, Miss and Whiskey. So we said, thank you, Tanner, for that. Yes, we did. I'm newish and I've been trying desperately to catch up. Don't try too hard. Most people get bummed when they do. I just finished the one you did on dolls and love the shout out to Robert the Doll. I was born and raised in the Florida Keys, and I'm fascinated by local ghost stories in the Keys. In fact, I frequent Key West a lot, but never went on a ghost tour because I figured it was hokey, over-theatrical, and designed for tourists. 
but you guys gave me the encouragement to finally go. So now I can say I've been on a walking ghost tour in Key West. I was kind of right about it being designed for tourists. I have read the ghost stories of Key West book, and it was pretty much the same stories only told to us in front of the actual locations by a 20-something boy in heavy eyeliner. I wouldn't call it terrible, but it wasn't great either. Uh, My favorite part was when we got to see the house where Robert, the doll, used to live. He now lives at the Martello Gallery Historical Museum. And for those who don't know where his former home was, we talked about it on the bonus cast, number 19. The artist's house is where he originally had been. So now he's at the Martello Gallery Historical Museum. I've always wanted to go visit it, but I'm really weirded out by dolls and can't bring myself to stop there. I'm right there with you. (laughs) I I love telling the story about Robert the doll, but I don't know that I particularly want to meet him. That's what I told her. I said, I'm pretty brave until it comes to that. And then I'm like, I don't think I want to see him. Especially after reading the whole Robert story. There's a local rumor that the idea for the Chucky movie spawned from stories of Robert, but it's just a fan theory. Actually, the gentleman who told us the backstory on the artist's house and about Robert said that he'd heard the same thing, that it was what they'd based Chucky on. Truth, dolls creep me out, like a lot. I never played with dolls as a kid because when I was very small, I used to think they preferred to play without me. (laughs) Okay. She was born to be into our podcast. (laughs) Loved that episode. I'm very much the skeptic when it comes to paranormal, though I may not fully believe in stories I hear. I have never discounted a friend's experience. I believe they believe what they experienced was real, and I'm open to all possibilities. But for the most part, I think stories get over-embellished with time and that the teller's imagination can get carried away. I don't buy into hype, famous ghosts, and I don't tend to make lasting friendships with people who loudly preach, boast about all the ghostly experiences they have had. Well, thank you, Marianne, for that. And she also suggested a location for us in Key West, Denise. And this one sounds pretty interesting. And it's got Ernest Hemingway connected to it. And even though she claims to be a skeptic, we have a little bit of an experience that she's had there, too. So Very cool. And now that's a road trip that's very doable in the nearer future because Key West is not all that far away. And Denise, what did you tell me that your dream was? My dream is one of these days, years, months to rent like a 15 passenger van and do history goes bump through the keys. And so we would have just listeners sign up and we would be telling ghost stories as we drive down through the keys, ending the tour at Key West. So that is one of my dreams of a history goes bump road trip that would include as many listeners as we could take. Sounds like fun to me. The keys are gorgeous. Want to give a shout out to Ghostlands Podcast. They gave us a shout out and tweeted out about our show. We greatly appreciated that. So you know what, Denise? I tuned into that show and it's actually very good. Excellent. I enjoyed it. So I recommend it to you guys. Ghostlands Podcast. Want to thank Matt for his Minnesota suggestion and Katie for your legend suggestion in West Virginia. So we'll be bringing all of that to people in the future. Want to welcome to the Spectacular Crew, Sherry with a Y. Hey, Sherry with a Y. Katie with an I-E. Hi, Katie with an IE. I think this is Serana. Hey, Serana. It's spelled like Savannah, only with an R instead of a V. And Lorelai. Hey, Lorelai. Do we not have the best names in the Spooktacular crew? (laughs) We definitely do. It's like, hmm, we need to change our names, but then nobody would know us. And a little fun fact, when I lived in Wyoming, which would have been, gosh, 22 years ago, and when I used to drink beer, my favorite beer, you know what the name of it was? Um, Let me guess, Lorelai? It was. (laughs) All right, Denise, this is going to be a tough one. Are you ready to head over to the battlefield? I most certainly am. All right, let's do it. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. 
Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The Moment in Oddity was suggested by our listener, Brittany Cox. Several cities in Oklahoma claim to be home to an urban legend known as Crybaby Bridge. The tale seems to have been almost inspired by the Mexican legend of La Llorona that we've detailed on the podcast before. People who visited the various bridges claiming to be Crybaby Bridge say that they hear the wails of babies when they visit the bridge at night. There are two stories related to the legend. The first is that a woman was traveling across the bridge in her car with her infant child in the back seat. She had a horrible car wreck and both she and the baby were killed. People claim to hear the cries of the baby when they park on the bridge and turn off the engine. Others report that they see the glowing figure of a female ghost walking along the creek below the bridge looking for her baby. On occasion, the car will fail to start when visitors are ready to leave the bridge. The other story dates to the late 1940s. A family that lived deep in the woods near the bridge had a horrible secret. The father had been raping the daughter, and he impregnated her several times. After each of the births, the daughter would throw the babies off the bridge into the creek, which has been named as North Boggy Creek. The legend goes that if you stand on the edge of the bridge, you can hear the babies crying. No one knows for sure if one of the decrepit bridges on Oklahoma's back roads or one of the newer bridges that has replaced an older bridge is the actual Crybaby Bridge, or if the bridge even actually exists. But if the Crybaby Bridge does exist, it certainly is odd. Turn out the lights. The party's just getting started. This Day in History On this day, July 23rd, in 1995, two amateur astronomers discovered the Hellbop Comet. These two amateur astronomers were Alan Hale, who was in New Mexico, and Thomas Bopp, who was in Arizona. Both men had trained their telescopes on globular cluster M70. They noticed a fuzzy object, and after observing it for a while, they realized it was moving, and so it had to be a comet. Both Hale and Bob sent their observations to the International Astronomical Union's Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams. Ooh, say that fast ten times. According to NASA, this comet was the farthest comet ever to be discovered by amateurs. The comet only got as close as 120 million miles away from the Earth, but it was so bright it could be seen by the naked eye. The comet circled behind the sun and then began moving further and further away. It won't return for another 2,300 years. Hellbop was the most photographed comet in history. A tragic footnote to the comet's visit were the suicides of several members of a cult. The cult was Heaven's Gate, and it was an end-times-type cult headed by Marshall Applewhite. 
They believed some kind of alien spacecraft was following the comet and that it was coming to rescue them from Earth. Unfortunately, Applewhite brainwashed his followers into believing that in order to make that transition, they needed to die so their spirits could leave their bodies, pass through Heaven's Gate, and board the spaceship. They drank a lethal cocktail of alcohol mixed with phenobarbital. Applewhite and 38 of his followers died that day. The History Goes Bump Podcast. The Battle of the Somme began on July 1st, 1916, 100 years ago this month, and it lasted until the 18th of November. This was the defining battle of the First World War, and the very first day of this clash was the bloodiest in the history of the British Army. Hundreds of thousands would lose their lives in the four months of fighting. This was a campaign fought between the German and British empires, and the Battle of the Somme has been called the beginnings of modern all-arms warfare. The bloodshed is similar to the Gettysburg and Antietam battles during the American Civil War, and as we have found with the locations where these meetings took place, the Battle of the Somme battlefield is reputed to be incredibly haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Battle of the Somme. World War I was the first global conflict in human history, and it began in 1914. The trigger that started the conflict was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. The war involved Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire on one side, and Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Japan, and the United States on the other. The tactics of this war, which included the use of war machines and trenches, led to carnage beyond belief. By the time the war ended in 1918, 9 million soldiers and 7 million civilians had died. When the war ended, national borders were redrawn and empires had fallen. One of the key battles of this war, and by far the bloodiest, was the Battle of the Somme. A little fun fact, pigeons were used as a form of communication during this battle and World War I in general. Actually, Disney gave a tribute to that with the little pigeon named Valiant. That's right. I forgot about that movie. We haven't watched that in a long time. No, we haven't. But remember, it, they yeah. were little army pigeons and they would go and take the messages. That's right. I don't know why I had forgotten about that because obviously we've seen that movie. By the time of the battle, the bulk of the British Army was made up of volunteer forces of the Territorial Forest and Lord Kitchener's new army. This is because the majority of the forces enlisted at the beginning of the war had been lost during the battles of 1914 and 1915. This new recruitment led to a rapid expansion of the British force and a need for senior commanders and specialists, bringing many officers out of retirement as well as inexperienced newcomers. The swift increase had the effect of reducing the levels of experience within the army as well as creating an acute shortage of equipment. On the British side, soldiers were drawn from across the empire, including Australia, Bermuda, Canada, India, Newfoundland, New Zealand, South Africa, Southern Rhodesia, and the UK. The French would join the British in this offensive. It's important to note that a sadder aspect of recruitment developed at this time. As part of the recruitment process to bolster the British forces, General Kitchener had promoted the PALS battalions. These battalions were groups of men all from the same town fighting together. This meant individual communities could be hit hard. 
the 11th East Lancashire Battalion, known as the Accrington Pals, sent 720 men into action on that first day of the Battle of the Somme. 584 would be recorded as casualties. So, Denise, that would be similar to us basically having our entire neighborhood volunteer to go fight in a war, and we'd only have a handful of us come back. Just devastate these communities. Yes, and if you think back in those days, families tended to stay not quite so spread out. They stayed much closer together, especially in Europe. And it was like they were begging for any man they could get. Didn't care what your experience was, were you retired, we need your body. And that's pretty much what they became, unfortunately. To understand the opening day of the Battle of the Somme, we need to understand the psychology going on behind the scenes with the British commanders. General Sir Douglas Haig was the commander-in-chief of the war, and Sir Henry Rawlinson was the commander of the 4th Army, which was the main army in charge of the Somme. Rawlinson had made a major mistake in a previous battle, and Haig saved him from being sacked. So Rawlinson felt trapped when it came to following Haig's plan. He knew it was unrealistic. That strategy for the opening day was to attack both the German front and second line, which was not a typical plan, particularly because the German line was located at a great distance from the British line. It was nearly impossible to get the artillery to hit the second line. To add to this, the German second line was hard to see because it was behind a hill. This made it so the guns were firing blind. So not only are they having a hard time actually reaching that second line, they can't even see where it's at. So they don't even know really what they're firing at. Well, and how frustrating that you might know that that was a bad plan, but you're afraid to say anything since your, your hiney was basically saved at a previous battle. Exactly. So you're feeling like, I better be loyal to this guy, but he's crazy. <laughs> so that brings up the question, which is more important, loyalty or integrity? Exactly. Or morals. What are your morals? Because thousands of men are going to die. Another issue for the British was that the French forces were not what they should have been because they had been engaged by the Germans at the Battle of Verdun. This battle of attrition took place just prior and during the Somme and made it so that French were in the role of support at the Somme rather than power. This changed the thought that the Battle of the Somme would be a decisive battle. There was hope that the Germans could be kept in Verdun to help the Russians be successful with the Brusloff Offensive. Although things would not go well for Britain, enough of a blow would be dealt to Germany to make a difference. Many German officers would be lost, making it difficult for Germany to be on top again during the rest of the war. So even though they're going to have these big losses, at least they're going to make a little bit of a difference with getting rid of some of the leadership for the Germans. Prior to the attack on the morning of July 1st, British artillery had spent five days using their 18-pounder field guns to bombard the German trenches, which stretched along a 15-mile front. You heard that right, a 15-mile front. I can't even imagine because that's longer than a half marathon and that's a huge distance. The goal was to cut the barbed wire which covered the areas between the opposing trench positions and neutralizing the German artillery. Over those five days, more than 1.5 million shells were fired. Another 250,000 shells would be launched July 1st, and this bombardment was able to be heard in London, some 165 miles away. Could you imagine, Diane, just being right where the battle was taking place? Because I just think about, you know, a smaller comparison is like the Magic Kingdom fireworks, which we can hear from our house, which is less than 20 miles away from Magic Kingdom. And when I'm close, just the feeling of 
like sometimes it's uncomfortable when they kind of boom right in your chest. I don't know if anybody else has that feeling. Could you imagine this being right there? It almost felt like your chest was exploding. So imagine these German and British troops, which are right there. If you can hear this 165 miles away, I'm surprised not only did they, for those that survived, but did they have their hearing when they were done? Exactly. With the zero hour for the battle set for 7.30 a.m., at 7.28 a.m., British forces detonated a series of 19 mines along the length of the German front, with the aim that they would disrupt or destroy German defenses and provide shelter for the advancing troops. These mines ranged in size from the smallest at 500 pounds through to the mine known as Lochnogger. This mine, placed at a depth of 52 feet, consisted of 60,000 pounds of explosive. When detonated, it created a crater 450 feet across and threw a column of dirt to a height of nearly 4,000 feet. Amazing. God, the magnitude of that thing blowing up would just be almost unbearable. I can't even imagine. It's like having a comet slam into the earth, causing a crater. Yeah, I wonder if some of those craters are still there along the battlefield. It'd be interesting to see pictures or have somebody who's been there tell us. So if you've seen seen this battlefield, or Bob, if you've been there, if you could let us know, that would be very appreciated. The first day of battle was a success for the French and British forces to the south of the battle. However, the British infantry attacking on the northern sector suffered a huge defeat. They suffered 57,000 casualties, of which 19,000 were killed. The Germans had weathered the artillery fire in deep trenches. When the 100,000 British troops started to advance on the German lines, they were mowed down by rifle and machine gun fire. As the first phase of the battle continued, offensive operations continued along the length of the valley, all increasing the casualty numbers, some more notably than others. On the 4th of July, Britain suffered another 25,000 casualties as they engaged in bloody hand-to-hand fighting in an attempt to take Mamet's woods and the surrounding forest. So in case you guys missed that, that is 57,000 casualties for the British side alone. That is a huge magnitude of loss. I can't even imagine. So this was the bloodiest day in British military history. Just looking at these numbers, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't the bloodiest day in all military history. South African troops took and held Deville Woods, or as it would come to be known, Devil's Woods, on July 15th with 3,000 soldiers of the 1st South African Brigade. German forces unleashed a series of brutal counterattacks consisting of artillery and machine gun fire. The terrible weather turned the wood into a muddy graveyard, but despite the odds, the South Africans held their ground. By July 20th, only 143 men were left alive. The Battle of Framilles, which took place from the 19th to the 20th of July, saw the introduction of Australian forces onto the Western Front and is known as the worst 24 hours in Australia's entire history. So we've had now the bloodiest day in British military history. This is the worst 24 hours in Australia's entire history, not just military history, entire history. And the thing that I couldn't help but wonder when it was talking about the weather turning the wood into a muddy graveyard, was it just the weather? If I know from our battlefields, it's probably a lot of that was blood. Oh, I can't even imagine. Of the 7,000 British casualties, 5,500 were from the Australian 5th Division. The battle was meant to be a subsidiary attack, but the preparations were rushed and the troops involved were inexperienced in trench warfare. The strength of the German defenses was gravely underestimated, with the defending Germans having twice as many troops as the attacking British forces. This engagement marked the end of the first phase of the battle. As we have seen, the Battle of the Somme was a series of skirmishes that were their own separate battles or confrontations. 
The second phase of the battle took place between July 14th and the 15th of September and saw the largest counterattack by the Germans. Other than the battle taking place at DeVille Woods, there were three other battles that would occur during the second phase, Poitiers Ridge, Guillemont, and Ginchy. And please forgive me if I pronounce those incorrectly because French is not my easiest language to pronounce. The Battle of Ginchy, which saw the French forces make their biggest attack on the Battle of the Somme, helped the British side capture more ground and inflicted around 130,000 casualties on the Germans. The third phase of the battle began in September and lasted until November. During that time, the Battle of fleurs Cruchelet had Canadian and New Zealand divisions enter the fighting for the first time, and tanks were introduced at this time as well. As the fighting continued through September into October and November, the increasingly bad weather began to delay and restrict the abilities of both sides to continue the fighting. The battles that occurred during this time were Morville, Transloy Ridges, Thiepville Ridge, Ankh Heights, and Ankh. After the Battle of Ankh, which took place the 13th to the 18th of November, a lull occurred that lasted until January 1917, as the armies concentrated on enduring and surviving in the rain, snow, fog, mudfields, waterlogged trenches, and shell holes. Well, that just sounds like a living hell. Well, you know, on that day in history that we did a couple of episodes ago, it talked about all the disease that was in the trenches, too. Imagine somebody gets the flu in there, forget it. Exactly. While the Battle of the Somme had no definitive outcome, it did have a lasting effect on the British and German armies. A German officer wrote, Somme, the whole history of the world cannot contain a more ghastly word. Those British troops who survived the battle went from being inexperienced volunteers to soldiers, capable of conducting mass industrial warfare. The German forces, despite mostly holding their ground, suffered losses that would have a greater impact. The troops it lost were those who had been trained pre-war, and they were no longer able to replace them like for like, thus reducing their abilities on the battlefield. The German army was exhausted by the end of 1916 with loss of morale and the cumulative effects of attrition and frequent defeats, causing it to collapse in 1918. This process began at the Somme. So while the British basically lost this battle, in the end it helped them to win the war. So it was actually a positive in the end. Let's put it this way. Those men didn't give their lives in vain. There are more than 250 military cemeteries located across the battlefields of the Somme, marking the final resting places for thousands of the dead. These cemeteries range in size from a few headstones located close to where men fell to those containing several thousand graves. There are many headstones engraved simply with a soldier of the Great War known unto God, a phrase suggested by Rudyard Kipling. I had no idea. Very interesting. It's kind of like our Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. French graves and ossuaries also dot the landscape, and the German dead are located beneath gray headstones, often in plots containing around four individuals or in mass graves known as Comraden Graben, or Comrade's Grave. And I hope my German was okay there. The Battle of the Somme lasted 141 days. Total losses were staggering. 794,238 British and French soldiers were lost with the German Empire losing 537,918. Apart from the Battle of Stalingrad, no other battle has had more casualties than the Somme. This was also one of the first battles to be fought in the air as well as on the ground, with 782 aircraft destroyed. It also saw the first use of tanks. 
By the end of the battle, British and French forces had managed to advance six miles. Bob had said to us during the research that he was thinking about what we'd said comparing it to Gettysburg, etc., and it occurred to him that one battle lasted three days and changed the course of a nation. The other lasted four months and had little positive outcome other than the loss of life. And that was over 1.3, almost 1.4 million soldiers in total killed during that battle. And they just advanced six miles. And really, (laughs) I mean, what makes me kind of sad is that I'd never even heard of this battle until Bob suggested it. And that's just really sad that all these men lost their lives. And it's a battle that, you know, maybe it's more well known in Europe, but over here it's not, or at least to me. Such bloodshed on the field of battle is tragic. And this seems to lead to battlefields being haunted. The Somme battlefield is no different. It is considered one of the most haunted battlefields in the world. I heard a podcast that a man was speaking about this battle, and he shared the experience of the ground being soft because it was just a thin layer of dirt thrown over dead bodies. So there were still arms and legs that could be seen in some places. Many bodies probably did not receive proper burials, and there were many mass graves, which we know tends to lead to this haunting activity. Right. It's like they're not settled or they're definitely not resting in peace. There was an area of the battlefield called No Man's Land. During the early hours of the 5th of November in 1916, German forces were targeting their fire on trenches held by the British 2nd Battalion of Suffolk Regiment when, as reported by Captain Newcomb, something unusual occurred. He reported that as he studied the area of No Man's Land that separated the trenches, he saw a brilliant white light appear from the muddy ground which slowly turned into a figure of a uniformed British officer. The figure began to walk along the length of the British trench, his face turned towards them, as if inspecting the troops and their trenches. He then reportedly turned his gaze towards the German lines, and for a moment the barrage ceased. British flares then filled the air as a request for their own artillery to return fire. The form was then lost in the midst of smoke and dirt. This officer who walked between the trenches was a figure whose face was well known to the British. It was reported as being that of Lord Kitchener, who had died five months earlier after the ship he was on struck a mine and sunk while traveling to Russia. Artist William Orpin, who had been born in Dublin, had an experience on the battlefield. He was producing artwork based on scenes from the Western Front about a year after the war. He found himself among the remains of several skeletons in ragged uniforms. Oh, that's a creepy place to be doing your art. After painting for several hours, Orpin began to feel that he wasn't quite alone, and that despite the fact that the sun was still shining, the day seemed to be darkening. Overwhelmed by feelings of dread and fear, Orpin sat down on a tree trunk. As he did, he was suddenly flung backwards, hitting his head heavily on the ground. Struggling, panic-stricken to his feet, he realized that his canvas had been destroyed. It too had been knocked over, and the skull of a soldier had ripped through the center. Somehow, Orpin was able to start another painting, and he continued on with no further ghostly interruptions, though the sense of dread went on. Denise, this is like those people who have a scary experience that go right back to sleep. There's no way. If something pushes you back and you knock your head, and basically it sounds to me like it threw a skull through the canvas, and canvases are pretty hard to get something through. Uh, Bye. I know you at least want to go and change your underwear. (laughs) Yeah, I would definitely need to because I would have peed my pants. It was a short time later when Orpin found himself conversing with another great war artist named Henry Joffroy. Joffrey mentioned that he had seen an unusual skull on the battlefield that he wanted to study closer because of a cleft on the jawbone. Orpin said he would drive him out and pick him up later. 
When Orpen arrived to pick up Joffroy, he found the man lying prone in the distance. Joffroy was stricken and said that the smell of the battlefield had made him sick. He was also upset because when he was studying the skull, he saw an eye in one of the sockets. Orpen was confused by this as the stench of the dead had long since gone and no eyes remained in any skull. Paranormal tours of the Somme will always include a trip to Mammoth's Wood with very good reason. It is the location of most of the battlefield's ghost stories, so Denise's would be the most haunted location on the battlefield. Many locals claim to hear the eerie sound of bugle calls on the air. Sometimes there are the sounds of battle and screams of men dying. The vast majority of ghostly reports from Mammoth's Wood concern feelings of being watched as if a thousand eyes are watching the people who walk here. Could this be the residual energy of those German troops watching as the British ran across the battlefield? People walking from Flatiron Cemetery along the track before the trees and up to the Red Dragon Monument find themselves feeling uneasy. Locals tend to avoid the area. Delville Woods is another place with hauntings, and it should if it's called Devil Woods. Disembodied allied troops are seen amongst the trees. One person claims that they were walking in the wood when the hair on the back of his neck stood up and he heard a voice say, We're still here. That would be the last time I was ever anywhere near that woods. Whole communities would fight as a brigade during this battle, and the result was very tragic for these communities who lost so many of their young men. One of these was the then country of Newfoundland. On July 1st, 1916, the whole Newfoundland regiment were sent over the top of the hills on the Somme, which meant almost certain death. The reason why is because the brigade would need to get under barbed wire without any cover and the trenches were full of Germans. They would then have to evade machine gun fire for 750 yards. 810 Newfoundland troops went over the hill. Only 68 returned. There was a tree near the spot where the troops squeezed under the wire that they dubbed the danger tree. Today, visitors near that tree claim to feel an overwhelming sense of dread and depression and a need to run away very quickly. Seems to me like the main thing that you get on this battlefield is a sense of dread and a very oppressive feeling. Yeah, so it seems like all the fear of all of the troops on both sides have just been like kind of captured there in the ground. Makes you wonder what the ground is made out of. It it does. I wonder if we've got some stone in there or something because, yeah, it's it's almost like that energy and those feelings from that battle, particularly that first day, are just there. People walk in and you immediately feel it's like they're projected onto you. Yes, so that's why we're going to send Rob to check it out, because I don't know that I necessarily want to go see this site. (laughs) Sergeant Thomas Hunter of New South Wales fought for the Australian forces, and he managed to survive the Battle of the Somme, but he'd been injured, and he succumbed to those injuries in an English hospital bed on July 31st, 1916, and was buried nearby. The infirmary where he died is now the location of Peterborough Museum. There is a staircase coming off of one of the corridors, And it is here where Sergeant Hunter is seen in his ghostly form. Curators working alone in the building often hear footsteps pacing in the rooms above their heads. When they go to investigate, they always find the rooms deserted. Do the spirits of those that lost their lives on the field of battle still remain here? Do the sounds and scents of that horrendous war still carry over to our present day? Is the Somme battlefield haunted? That is for you to decide. It's got all the markings to make it a haunted location, so it's very possible. I would say so. 
On our next episode, we're going to feature The Bryce House, and this was suggested to us by Amanda Prouty. So looking forward to bringing that to you guys. We have some iTunes reviews to share. Our first review is from Firebird3131, five stars. Very enjoyable and entertaining. Short and concise and very sweet. Thank you, Firebird. We appreciate that. And Tracer Tron, great to listen to, five stars. My boyfriend and I don't really have a lot of podcasts we listen to together, and he especially doesn't appreciate my spooky interests. But this is one of the very few podcasts that we both listen to. That's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. The ladies, Diane and Denise, are wonderful to listen to with their friendly and welcoming demeanor. I am also always learning new things with their podcast. I lived in Dayton, Ohio for a number of years, for example, but I didn't even know the amount of stories from the Woodland Cemetery episode. I'm also grateful for the structure of their show and that it's easy to follow. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Tracer. We appreciate that. And Denise, we appreciate everybody tuning in for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Roberta Mason and Marissa Deal. Thank you. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump. Listen, the M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.